Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at Grace Point Church, we believe in meeting people where they are and leading them to where God wants them to be. Join us now as we listen to this week's message. I had one of the very first uh, printed editions of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. It was part of a box set of Dr. Seuss books that my parents got me a long, long time ago. And uh, the books were, that particular book was written in 1957, so I probably got this, it wasn't the first printing, but it was early on. It was early on enough that it was still in black and white. Uh, it was only when they made the movie that they made the Grinch green. Because in the book, in the original book, the Grinch was black and white. The only color in the entire book was that his eyes were yellow. And so I loved that book. I, I, I loved reading it and uh, didn't really understand it because I always was happy with Christmas. Uh, but it was an interesting book. And, and one of the things that, that, uh, that I learned about, about the book was that a lot of the things that happened in the movie, the original movie, the original cartoon movie that was uh, done by the same guy that did all of the Bugs Bunny cartoons, the original movie, that original movie was different from the book. And then in 2000... Uh, Jim Carrey did a remake of the movie, which was a remake of the book, uh, and uh, explained a lot of things. Like, if you were to look at the book, and this is what the book looked like, that's the original cover, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. There's a part where it tells us why the Grinch was, was angry or why he didn't, wasn't happy with Christmas. And this is an actual picture of that section of, of the original book that was in black and white, and it, and it reads like this. It says, the Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be, perhaps, that his shoes were too tight. But I think the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. Now, in the book, it never tells us why his heart was two sizes too small, but in the Jim Carrey movie, which is kind of a origins backdrop backstory of the movie, it does tell us why the Grinch's heart was small. For some reason, when he came home that day, he really got into the Christmas spirit for the first time. Baby, Okay. I haven't. 
Christmas more than me. Why do you have a bag on your head? Probably because he's embarrassed by that idiot's gift. <laughs> Mr. Grinch, please take the bag off. Yes, you take it off. Put the book down. And your foot. Look at that hack job. <laughs> The fury, the muscles. It was a horrible day when they were so cruel to him, and I could hardly bear it. See, wouldn't you know it would be a girl? All right, eight years old. And that's, that's, that's the reason why he hates Christmas. He was hurt. And there's a saying, um, and you may have heard it before, and the saying goes, hurt people hurt people. And oftentimes the people who we run into that seem intent on causing pain to other people are people who've experienced these deep hurts. And so just like the Grinch, it's a cartoon, it's a book, it's a movie, it's not real. And yet the meaning behind it and this whole idea that we can get hurt and that that hurt lasts and and when that hurt comes, we can never have real peace. Because when we get hurt like that, when, when things happen in our lives that disappoint us and, or, or that, that cause us pain, one of the things that, that happens to us is, is that we start to have fear. We have fear of losing something. We have fear of getting hurt. Most of the time, the reason that you and I don't have peace about life or peace in life is because we have fear of the unknown. We have fear of what's coming next because we're not sure. And a lot of us tend to take the worst possible scenario and let that fester in our minds. And so we don't have peace. And yet what we know, and if you were to read the Christmas story, one of the things that you would see in that is one of the things that Christmas is supposed to bring to us. One of the things that the birth of the baby Jesus was supposed to start was to bring peace into our lives. When they were looking at that very first Christmas, in fact, even today, among the people who were looking at the historical record, what in what we today call the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew scriptures, when they talk about how they predicted that Jesus was coming and how they said, OK, these are the things that were going to happen. One of the prophets, a man named Isaiah, wrote about what was going to be coming about this Jesus, this anointed one, this Messiah, the one who is going to save us. In fact, there's a verse in his, in his long prophecy about Jesus. There's a verse in there that we always hear at Christmas time. Uh, if you've ever um, 
gone to listen to Handel's Messiah, it's one of the main songs in that whole long, long, long series of songs. And um, it goes like this. And, and this is what we're going to look at today because this is the prophecy about who Jesus would be. This is what is telling us who is coming. And there's, you know, there's two kinds of prophecy. And a, a lot of times, especially if you're, you uh, have been going to church a long time or, or if you've had a, a cursory experience around church and you hear people talking about prophecy, what we automatically assume it to be is someone who's predicting the future. And there is prophecy that is about predicting the future. But the most common type of prophecy is not predicting the future as much as it is telling you what to look for so that you will see what has been promised in the future. So the prophet Isaiah wrote about this Jesus who was coming. And it goes like this. It starts here. It says this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And so he's telling us right from the beginning that this Messiah, this person who is supposed to be coming, is going to come as a child, as a newborn child. Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The verse goes on and it says this, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, I don't know, I, I've, I've heard that in song over the years. I've sung that in that song over the years. And I think that's one of those verses that we just gloss over. What does that mean? The government will be upon his shoulder. Is there going to be like a legislature right here on his shoulder? Is the president going to be standing on his shoulder? Is that what it means? What does it mean when he says that? Well, without context, we don't understand what he's talking about. But later on, Isaiah will tell us, he will tell us in Isaiah 22, he talks about what this means. Because in this particular time period, if you are a person with authority... If you have the authority of the government, if you have the authority of the king, you would wear on your shoulder an emblem. An emblem that might have a key, it might have a symbol, but it was a sign that you had the authority to govern. We think of government and we think that it, we, when we think of government, we think of the United States government, right? We think of the, the county government, the state government. But that's not what he's talking about here. When he says the government will be upon his shoulder, what he's saying is, is that the authority to decide what is going to happen is with him. The government will be upon his shoulder. And then the verse ends like this. And his name will be called. Now today, when someone has a baby, we think of a name and, and the names that we think of are like, what is going to be the coolest name to give my baby? Or what is the cutest name to give my baby? Or, or what name really sounds well with, with my last name, right? So um, we would never name, like I would never name my kid Philista. <laughs> because then for the rest of his or her life, he would be Philista Evangelista. And the poor kid would just not have a life at all. So when we think of names, we think of it completely different than they did in this time. Because when he's talking about, the prophet is saying, and his name will be called. He's not talking about just what is it that we're going to talk, how will we refer to him. When he's talking about what name will he be called, he's saying, this is who this person is. And this is what this person is going to be able to do. 
And so when he says, and his name will be called, and he's going to go through this whole list of names, he's not only telling us, he's not telling us what we're going to call him as his name, like Joe. Sorry, Joe. Didn't mean to pick on you. Right? That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is this is who this guy is. This is the authority that rests in this guy. This is the ability, the power. This is what this guy is going to be coming in to do. And so he says, and his name will be called. And he starts off the bat with wonderful. Now, you, we, the way we use wonderful today is not how he uses wonderful. Right? We go and we see the big Christmas tree at Union Square and we go, wow, that's wonderful. Or if you've ever had a really, really well-cooked prime rib, <laughs> you look at it and you go, whoa, now that is wonderful. But that's not the wonderful that he's talking about here. See, this wonderful, this word, when you translate it out of the original Hebrew, it means incomprehensible. It means you can't understand it. In fact, when he starts off talking about who Jesus is, he starts off by telling you, listen, everything else that I'm about to say about who he is, it's going to be hard for you to get it. I'm going to start off right off the bat and tell you it's incomprehensible. His name is incomprehensible. It's going to be hard for you to see exactly who he is, but I'm going to try. So he starts off right off the bat and he says, his name will be called Wonderful. And then he says this, Counselor. Now, I got into trouble a lot in high school, and so I always had to go see the counselor. (laughs) That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about a person who you know, sits you down and talks to you when you've got problems. He's not talking about an attorney. In this word, the counselor that they talked about in this particular time period, it was a wise king who was giving advice to his people or a wise advisor giving advice to the king. A king who's giving wise advice to his people. See, what Isaiah is telling us through this, because he, he first off, he says, you're not going to understand this. But listen, the guy that's coming, he is going to have the right answer for your life every single time. Whenever you've got a problem, he's got the answer. Whenever you have a question, he's got the answer. All of the things that you don't know, he's got the answer. Because he is an incomprehensible giver of wise advice. So he says, his name will be called Wonderful. His name will be called Counselor. And then he says, Mighty God. In the Hebrew, it's translated El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And Shaddai, El Shaddai together is often translated as Almighty God. And listen, if you grew up in church, you heard you've been singing songs out of the hymnal that are talking about Almighty God and And see, one of the things that I think happens with us is that those words lose meaning. So the better translation for the word Shaddai out of the Hebrew, the better translation is sufficient. What Isaiah is saying here is that he is the God, El, who is sufficient. Now, what does that mean? The God who is sufficient means that in any situation, 
whatever it is that is needed, whatever strength you need, whatever power you need, whatever resources you need, he is sufficient. Now, sometimes we don't want sufficient. What we want is overwhelming power. Right? Men? When you get a car, do you want a car that is sufficient? Or do you want a car with overwhelming power? There you go. That's inside us. It's our nature. In everything that we do, we want more than enough. Right? That's why for a lot of people, the thing that is on our mind right now as we're closing out the year is that the market has been down and what is happening to my 401k? Because it's not enough what is now. We want to look at what is more. It's not that there's anything bad with that. But for some people, if that's all you're focused on, you forget that God is sufficient. So sometimes you only have a little need and God is sufficient and he provides the little need. And sometimes you have a big need and God is sufficient and he provides the big need. But he doesn't provide the big need when all you have is a little need. And he doesn't give you a little need when, he, when your need is big. See, the beautiful thing about God is sufficient. I want you to get this picture. That no matter what it is in your life, God is sufficient. He's sufficient. So he says his name will be called Mighty God. And then he says, Everlasting Father. Now, I will tell you that theologians have been talking about and writing about this phrase for years. Everlasting Father, right? Because the Christian understanding is that Jesus is the Son and that there is a Father God. And so why is Isaiah telling us that he is the everlasting Father? That the baby is the everlasting Father. And the best explanation that I I have ever heard And you're just going to have, you know, you can look it up and find it and see if you've got something better. But the best explanation that I've heard, that I've read, is that the key portion of this is not father. It's everlasting. Infinite is a better translation for it. In other words, what he's saying is this, is that as a father and and for the culture that they lived in there, and for many of us here, even in our culture today, the primary responsibilities of the Father is to provide and protect. In the culture in this time, it's also to provide and protect. And so here is an everlasting Father, a Father who provides and protects from before you existed, even after you existed. Before you were around, he was providing and protecting to make the way for you to be here. And listen, way after you're gone, he is still doing stuff. Places in scripture where it says that he is doing things to the third and fourth generation after you. After you're long forgotten. After your third and fourth generation can't even remember your name or what you did or where you lived or what you looked like. God's still moving everlasting father. And then he finishes it out by saying this. The prince of peace, the prince of peace. I I wondered, uh, why does he say prince of peace? Why doesn't he say the king of peace? Because, you know, prince is good. 
But you would rather be the king, right? Because the king is the one that has the power. The king is the one that's in charge. So why does he call him the prince of peace? Well, if we focus just on prince, again, in this culture, when this guy was writing this, the king always stayed home. The king always stayed in the castle. The king was always somewhere safe, somewhere protected. But the one who represented the king, who went out and talked to the people, who engaged with the king's kingdom, was not the king. It was always the prince who would go out. See, there's a special meaning when he says prince of peace. He's not just saying to you, well, he's got some kind of royalty. He's got some kind of authority. See, in their time, when the people who were listening to this, who who were the target audience for when Isaiah wrote this, when they heard the prince of peace, what they heard was he was the one that was going to come and bring it out to us. That it wasn't something that we had to go somewhere, that we had to knock on a door, that we had to, to, to get an appointment to be at. He was saying, listen, the prince of peace doesn't wait for you to come. He goes out to where you are. And that word peace, the Hebrew word shalom, it has this connotation of completeness, completeness. Sometimes when we see peace, I think our instantaneous definition is a cessation of hostilities. Right? When we think of peace. We think of quiet. We think of tranquility. And yet that word for peace is not the word that we use for peace. That word for peace is not an outer peace. It's an inner peace. And there's a difference between the two. Sometimes we are in a place where there's, there's chaos all around us, but we are at peace and the chaos doesn't matter because we're at peace, right? And sometimes we're in a place where inside us there is no peace and you can be out on a quiet lake or you can be on a nice country drive or you could be sitting at home and even though it's peaceful and it's tranquil and it's quiet, You don't have any peace. His name will be called Prince of Peace. And that peace is an inside peace. Um, Rudyard Kipling, who is one of my favorite authors, he wrote a uh, poem years ago called If. And if you've never read it, it, it's great. But I want to just kind of bookend it and give you the opening and the closing of it. It opens like this. It says, if you can keep your wits about you, While all others are losing theirs and blaming you. And then he goes on, if you can do this, this, and this. And he ends it with this. He says, if you can do all of those things, the world will be yours and everything in it. What's more, you will be a man, my son. See, the wisdom that he had is is the wisdom that I think if we think about it, we all understand. That if we can have peace inside us, that nothing that happens around us will ever be able to shake us. But if there is no peace in us, it doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter how peaceful things are. It doesn't matter how quiet things are. It doesn't matter how much money we have or how big our house is or how many cars we drive. None of those things matter if you don't have peace inside. 
And so here at Christmas, the promise of Christmas for us is the promise of peace. And Isaiah goes through all of these things because he's trying to tell us, listen, this is what the peace that Jesus brings will bring to you. He says, you're not going to understand it. Okay, it's going to be incomprehensible to you. But in every moment, in every occasion where you think you don't know what you're going to do, Jesus can give you the right answer. In all of those times where you are not sufficient, where your energy is not enough, where your power is not enough, where your resources are not enough, Jesus will be sufficient. In every moment, in every moment where turmoil is going on all around you, Jesus will be your peace. That's what he's telling us. That's what his reminder is. And so, even with the Grinch, the message of peace, the message that Christmas brings of peace, is the one thing that is incomprehensible to him, and yet it's the one thing that changes him. His circumstances don't change, but what's inside him does. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming. It came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. Mr. Grinch! And the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas. He thought. Doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas. Perhaps. Means a little bit more. <coughs> then, well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. 
So there it is. And he basically said it, right? All of those other things that are on the outside of us, the, the ribbons, the gifts, the lights, all of those other things. They weren't really necessary and, and nothing really changed. The people who were in Whoville, the Who's, they had all of this stuff was gone. Their Christmas trees were gone. The lights were gone. The gifts were gone. Everything about Christmas was gone. And it didn't change anything for them because the peace was on the inside. And so here's the Grinch. He's looking at it and he's saying, if I could just change the circumstances around them, they will change. And instead, what happened was that because he saw that people's circumstances didn't change them, something changed inside him. And so on that Christmas, when he changed, it's the same thing that can happen to us. That what's inside us can change. What's inside us cannot be moved by the circumstances around us. And that is available to every single one of us. And here's the beauty of it. It doesn't matter if you have been going to church and and have had a connection with God your entire life. Or if you are here today or watching us online and this is your very first experience with being with him. That it's available to you today. Years after that very first Christmas, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the what we call today the New Testament, he wrote a letter to the new house churches in Ephesus. And in that letter, he wrote this. He said, he said, for and this is the very beginning of the verse. And and I stop here at four because four is a word that means because. Right. So before all of this, he's telling the people that he's writing to. He's saying all, all before you were lost and you're not lost anymore. Before all of the things that you were doing were weighing heavy on you. And now they don't have to weigh heavy on you. All of this stuff that you had done in the past that, that you thought was keeping you away from God is no longer in play. And they're like, oh, I don't understand how. So he's saying all this and then he says for because that the next one. All right, I missed this. I must have missed a slide. Is there one before that for and this is what he says. We don't have a slide for it, but this is the end of that verse for Christ himself has brought peace to us. That's what the end of the verse is. Christ himself has brought peace to us. Now that is a contemporary English translation. But if you translate it straight out of the Greek, the verse actually says, oh, there it is. It's magic. Yeah, it must be Christmas. For the original, if you translate it out of the Greek, it says what the verse actually says this. It says, for Christ is our peace. He doesn't bring the peace. He doesn't give us peace. It says that he is our peace. He is what calms what's going on inside us. He is what brings stability inside so that when everything else is going crazy outside, it doesn't move us. It doesn't shake us. And then he says. He united. Okay, I'm not going to. 
He united Jews and Gentiles. Now, I want you to get this because we read this and we see Jews and Gentiles and we think that it doesn't matter to us. But what Paul is saying here, because you have to consider who his audience is, what Paul is saying here is this. He's saying the Jews, the people who have known about God, who their entire history have had an experience with God. In other words, for us today, it's for those who have been in church your entire life. You've known God your entire life. He's uniting everybody who's been in it for a long time, and the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the ones who have no experience at all. They had no idea that there was this one God. And he's saying, listen, if he was talking to us today, he'd be saying, listen, this is him uniting all of us who have been in church, all of us who have accepted Jesus, all of us who are part of the family of God and have been there for a while, he's uniting us with the people who have not made that decision yet, who are just about to cross the line, who are brand new. He's uniting all of us into one people. And how did he do it? It says, when in his own body on the cross... He broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. I want you to think about that because in the culture and in the city and in this area that we live in, you know, it used to be that there was ambivalence towards people who follow Jesus. Today, in many places, there's open hostility. And Paul is saying this. He's saying, listen, those of you who have been Jesus followers maybe for your entire life, don't you dare get arrogant about that. Don't you dare think that you're better than anybody else. Because for the person who has been a Christian their entire life and the person who has become a Christian today, he's saying that he made the sacrifice so that we are all the same. That the hostility that separated us is gone. And he closes it out by saying this. He says he brought this good news of peace to you who were far away, to you who for the very first time are stepping into a church, for you who the very first time in your life, you might have heard about God, you might have kind of experienced it, you know, at Christmas and at Easter time, but never really made that commitment. For those of you who were far away, but are coming to him now, you get the peace. The same peace that comes to those who years ago made that decision. The same peace. Whether you're here with us today, whether you're watching us online, whether you're listening to us days or weeks from now. That same peace is available to you. And I don't want you to gloss over that word peace. Because that word peace in the Hebrew is the word shalom. And the word shalom means completeness. Nothing missing. Nothing broken. That's shalom. And that is the peace of Christmas. So for a moment, just just take a second. If you have to, close your eyes. Take a deep breath. And imagine for a second your life complete. 
your life with nothing missing. Your life with nothing broken. With no relationship broken. With no bank account broken. With no physical body broken. See, the promise of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one who doesn't wait for you to come, but who brings the shalom out to you, is a promise of completeness. Nothing missing in your life, nothing broken in your life. Christmas is a reminder. That Jesus brings peace into your world. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Grace Point Church is located in South San Francisco, California. For more information, look us up online at www.wearegracepoint.com.